0: You can make your way there. I forgot to put my offering in the offering plate. You know that you can do that online, so that'll be happening today. Let me just remind us from last week, if you don't mind, if we go back to chapter 2, the start of chapter 2, let me review just for a second. Last week we talked about the fact that if you will not hear, he says to the priests of that day, if you will not hear, if you will not take it to heart, he was giving a warning. God's warning came in sort of four variations of that. I will send a curse upon you. I will curse your blessings Uh, I will rebuke your descendants. And the last thing we saw in verse 3 was, I will spread refuse on your faces, which was a way of saying, I will absolutely humiliate you uh, before those who think that you're supposed to be uh, these priests who stand before me. I'm going to just deal with you. In fact, uh, before verse 3 finishes, he says, uh, and one will take you away with it. Uh, Basically saying, you're going to be removed out of the priesthood. Then you shall know that I have sent this, this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue. So he talks about uh, the fact that uh, there is a purity with his initial covenant that he made with Levi, the high priest, that there would be a priesthood. And uh, as that uh, priesthood t- took effect, uh, under starting with Aaron and so on, then uh, that priesthood has had a problem. It's been contaminated by these unfaithful priest. Then he gives a uh, sort of a, a list of what is a faithful priest under this covenant. And he talks about in verse 5, uh, uh, Levi feared me. That was the first one. Levi revered God's name. That was the next one in verse 5. Then verse 6, uh, Levi spoke God's truth and righteousness. Uh, Levi uh, uh, lived in righto- a righteous life. It says he walked with me in peace and equity. And the last thing of verse 6, he says, And he turned many away from iniquity, turned many away from sin. These are qualities of a faithful priest. Then he gave one more, which was in verse 7. And uh, just uh, that people would seek the Lord and so on through his word, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That is, he spoke for God and for God's word. And so those are qualities of a faithful priest. But he comes back and says uh, an indictment against these priests in three ways in verse 8. But you have departed from the way. It's the first thing you've done wrong. You have caused many to stumble in all the law. It's the second thing. And the third thing was you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways. God is just saying to, first of all, the priests of the land, and then all those who are following the that model of priesthood, that all of you folks have done this, and I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to judge you for that, is what He's saying. It's a serious text for us, and we dealt with that last week. We come to verse 10 in this uh, breaking uh, down of what God wants to say. And so he goes on in verse 10. And let me just read now from verse 10 through our text today. Have we not all one father? Have, has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware, and yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? Uh, he seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal Treacherously, another serious text that uh, we can draw something from. as I go through this, my my desire is not to lose you in certain Old Testament uh, uh, theology, but rather to call attention to how this affects us in our modern day uh, walk with Christ, and it does. And as we go through this together, so if you're new to the Word of God, may you would be able to kind of plunge in with us, and sort of uh, I'll try to make it so we can understand this together. Uh, what is being uh, actually being said, and why God is so uh, uh, upset with the response of the Israelites to His word and His His will? Let's pray together. Lord, Your word is sometimes deep, and it is a well that, uh, though deep, You allow us to have insight and to understand through. Our study and through our uh, experience as believers. I pray today you would make this aware and clear uh, to our modern day culture and who we are, how we live here, and how it affects our own life before you. Today, Lord, you are to be acknowledged and loved and served. And may our expressions, even in our hearts as we listen, may we be lifted to see you, uh, to sense your presence, to hear with ears, to hear. Lord, we, uh, we say today that we know you are with us. We believe by faith that you are, have called us here and that you are meeting with us, that you are concerned about our hearts as you look deep into our lives today. May we be honest before you. We ask your blessing on your word as you bring it to us. And thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. So Malachi, the prophet here, reminds Israel, all of Israel, of their supposed unity. He says in verse 10 that have we not all one father? Has not God created us? And so he wants to call them to that and remind them that under the uh, covenant with God that was made even back at Sinai, these folks are being renewed in that covenant, called back to that place of worshiping God and obeying His Word. And if they have received uh, His Word in such a way that uh, even here they're experiencing God's blessing, they're experiencing God's grace, though many are not uh, living in that and many are abusing that privilege, which sometimes even we do as we have God's grace all around us, but sometimes we miss the boat and we are not faithful. But what he wants to say is this, if this is the distinguishing f- uh, feature of God's people, then in verse 10, then Malachi wants to ask this question, uh, which is, why do we then deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? He asks the question, then he goes into verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously and of course he, uh, he he wants to unpack this by adding in and uh, for us to understand the situation here. They've dealt uh, treacherously and then he adds uh, uh, just more to the story of that along with Jerusalem and Israel and he's going to talk about that in just a moment. But Malachi wants uh, to say that God's people have uh, have had in their dealings with God a dishonest heart. They have Uh, been sinful, not only with God, but with each other. They've committed sinful acts. They've violated God's laws. Uh, They literally, in a sense, have broken faith uh, with one another, and especially with the Lord. And that's what he's addressing here. I, I just want to remind us as we go through this today that sometimes someone will leave church and they'll leave because they're emotionally angry about something. Someone's offended them. Maybe Usually it's me. Someone has offended them, and so uh, there's an issue why somebody walks out the door and leaves. But what happens is they leave without trying to repair or restore the issue. They just go. And I want to say it in the kindest but strongest terms, that when we just walk out of the church without having an opportunity to talk things out and try to repair the damage... We are breaking faith with God's church. And we are also breaking faith with God. Because everyone in this room messes up. Every one of us hurts someone else's feelings once in a while. Am I not correct? I I hope you would agree with me that you're not perfect and some of you have hurt my feelings and I've hurt yours, most likely, Uh, We're not a perfect people, but we are in God. We have the access to the Holy Spirit to help us to deal with our imperfections and our, our issues. And so as a body in Christ, we hope that we all resort to that, go back to the Spirit of God and evaluate ourselves and try to make things right. And so what's happening here, these folks are breaking faith by how they're living their lives in front of other folks who are trying to follow God. And they are breaking faith in the sense they are dividing the unity that they should be having as God's people. And especially with the Lord. When Listen, when men cease being faithful to the Lord, it should not be a surprise to us that they will also be less faithful to each other. And that's a problem. Mistreatment is happening today everywhere. Uh, It's it's almost commonplace today. You can't go anywhere and not have someone mistreating someone else. It's all over the place. In the last two years, it's been heightened because everybody's home. Everybody's watching, uh, going online, checking out their media and uh, listening to voices, new voices that have risen up and have commentaries that they want to make. And so everyone has their sort of person they go to to hear the newest gossip. And I'm sure that some of you are caught up in that. So that whether it's Black Lives Matter, anti-the gangs running around attacking people and businesses, uh, critical race theory stuff going on, uh, educational issues that everybody's divided on. Uh, there is there's just so much happening today. But here's what I'm mostly concerned about. It's not what's happening out there. It's still what I keep saying is happening in the church. There are people online today that have taken it on a professional kind of uh, position in, in their minds that they are now the new spokesman for God. And uh, in the privacy and protection of their little home basements, they have a microphone and a camera, and they think now that they are experts in doctrinal truth and everything else that goes with it. And so these folks get online, and so some of us are attracted. They might be good at presenting what they have to offer. But all they are are professional gossips. What's happening is they'll cut and paste something someone says that oh, they shouldn't have said that. Or if they take it out of context, it sounds much worse than it probably did in context. And so they're quoting everyone from Piper to MacArthur to whoever and posting it online as this horrendous, uh, you know, blasphemous statement that somebody made. And, and I'm thinking, if we could take what they say and how they live and put it on a camera and post it for everyone to read, I wonder how we'd think about them. The fact is, if we could take what you said in the last month Everything you said, and just take out of context a couple of things you said. I wonder how people would react to what you had to say online. And that is happening. When I say I wonder, it is happening. It's concerning. May God help us as His people to realize that if I'm saying anything, it should simply be to glorify Him in what I'm saying, how I'm saying it. Not just that's my truth, but that is the truth that I know uh, is professed in the church I attend, by the people that attend with me. And there's a oneness of spirit that we understand this, but don't think that everyone agrees with your opinion about everything. Make sure it's a, an opinion that is generally accepted by everyone here uh, in terms of how you express your theology and how you express and interpret everybody else's. That's a concern because nothing is more damaging to the cause of Christ than Christians who have a, a multiplicity of personal opinions. Maybe you are right, but maybe it's just how you express it that does damage to the cause of Christ. We're not growing the body of Christ these days, we're attacking it, and I'm concerned about this. uh, There's a mess within the church, and I want to preach against that, but at the same point, I want to make sure we're not a part of the problem. Verse 11, he says, uh, again, coming back to this, he says, Judah has dealt treacherously. Uh, In verse 11, and I want to just unpack this. There's two ways that Judah has dealt treacherously. And before he does that, he adds this little thing. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. That word abomination, it can mean a a detestable thing. It has to do with idolatrous practices in this context with pagan wives and their gods. That's going to be what we're going to see in just a moment. But Malachi was uh, not, just so you know, was not condemning cross-cultural marriages when we read some of that in this text. And so be careful. He was, uh, he was addressing the marriage of Jews to idolaters. That's a whole other thing. Matter of fact, Israelites permitted uh, foreigners to marry with Jews as long as they were believers. So we have uh, Ruth and Boaz It's a great example of that. But Judah had profaned the Lord's holy institution. This is the first thing that we see here in her dealing treacherously. That's point number one under this idea. Judah had profaned the Lord's holy institution. It goes on to say, which he loves. And then there's an explanation in the third part of verse 11. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. So we kind of have the the unpacking of this. And uh, marrying pagans was forbidden for this very reason because God's people would tend to be influenced to abandon the Lord God and attach themselves to the foreign gods of those that they're emotionally connected with. And the Lord's holy institution was his covenant relationship with Judah. Now, it's important for us to understand the relationship that is, was meant to be with all of the people of Israel. Of course, God made the covenant with all of the people. But they had that civil war after uh, Solomon uh, had left the scene. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam came in, and they had this civil war. The uh, ten tribes to the north split from the two tribes to the south. And in doing that, all the Messianic prophecies uh, tend to be about Jerusalem and being in the Holy City with God's temple. That's within the tribe of Judah. So Judah had become especially important to the Lord, and certainly Judah was being held to a more accountable position for the fact that the temple and the, and the altar and the throne were there uh, in their midst, and all the priests who lived nearby lived in the tribe of Judah, lived in the area of Judah. And so this is why, remember when we talked about Nehemiah back in chapter 13, I forget, weeks ago. i got to just remind you of this, if, uh, because it's just humorous. But uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah is trying to correct this very thing himself. Remember that Malachi is writing about the days of Nehemiah. So what I'm talking about here is what Malachi is addressing. So in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, this is what Malachi was talking about as we read this. In chapter 13 of Nehemiah, at verse 23, it says, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah. We're kind of seeing this today in our own educational system, in the public schools. Our kids are learning new ideas and uh, new language, how to speak, and so on. And it's amazing how so much of our uh, of our uh, English and our history and all of that's being sort of erased and replaced with all kinds of things. It says here that the, they, uh, says they could not speak the language of Judah, but they spoke according to the language of one or the other people. That is, either of, of Ashdod or of Ammon and Moab. They're, they're learning other languages, but not the language of Judah. So I contended with them, verse 25, and I cursed them. Now, he's not a prophet. Nehemiah was a civil leader, but he was not a prophet. So for him to curse them, I'm not sure if that was effective or not. But he, it doesn't mean he cussed at them. He might have, but that's not what the text is saying. Uh, I struck some of them and pulled out their hair. I always recommend this is the best way to change somebody's course of action. It usually works for a brief amount of time. (laughs) No, do not do that. Okay. Uh, Do not parent like this. That's a problem. And your kids will rebel. And one day they'll pull your hair out when you're like 90 years old. And uh, that won't be hard to do, by the way. But they will do that. And it goes on to say, And he made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. So he's just pleading with them, don't do this. And yet, of course, uh, the story would go on. That Here's Malachi, now the last prophet of God before the New Testament. And Malachi is addressing this very issue. It, it did not get resolved. I mean, it might have ceased for a moment. But as Nehemiah told the Lord at the end of chapter 13, I've, I've purged Israel of their sins. <laughs> well, no, you didn't really. You, you did a, a great job, but you got a little bit violent, and no one has really changed. And here's Malachi addressing these very issues here. So, uh, as we understand back in our text, uh, that Judah had profaned the Lord's holy institution, and uh, that's, that's a big, big issue. So Judah had been especially important to the Lord, and so on, as we said, in Nehemiah gives us an example of how special they are, how important they are, because they're messing up the, the altar, the, uh, the worship of God. They're, 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 they've uh, incorporated pagan gods and all of this going on in their lives. And it was a mess. Verse 12 in our text says this, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. There's a little interesting thing here in this verse that I thought I'd draw attention to you. There's a Hebrew idiom that's in the text. The man who does this being, and here it is, awake and aware. That's in the New King James Version. Uh, If you have a uh, King James, it may say master uh, and, and, and student, Uh, another version would say uh, again our master and scholar uh, teacher and student is another one Uh, what I found interesting was that the ESV translation the HCSB the NIV if you use that or the NLT that's the New Living Trail all of these have excluded this idiom they have just taken it out and sometimes when you take things out you miss something and this is very important in the understanding of what what Malachi is trying to say here, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, and then he uses this little phrase, being awake and aware, or master and scholar, teacher and student, yet who brings an offering to the Lord. What does that mean? And, and to uh, sort of understand what it means, the best way I can show you what it means is to go to a text that illustrates this, and that's all the way back in your Bibles in Leviticus in chapter 10. If you'd make your way back and join me there, you'll see how this is fleshed out for us. Quickly, in Leviticus chapter 9, you have uh, the understanding that the priestly ministry that God has ordained takes place. He's launched this off. uh, Moses calling and talking to Aaron and telling Aaron what God has said to do uh, about how to do the the altar and so on and how to... uh, how to process what it means to be a priest before the people. And so that's all being unpacked in chapter 9. In fact, uh, at the end of chapter 9, uh, they finish with all the worship. They've had a big day of sacrificing and so on. In verse 22, uh, then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from the offering of sin, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came uh, and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out of from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat of the altar, on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And there was this great moment of celebration and praise, as God actually then responded to this uh, first uh, uh, first offering that was established, and how uh, this is what God wanted. Then you come to chapter ten. And you have the two sons of Aaron. Now, you know, if they're a son of a priest, they are to be priests themselves. Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and uh, and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. There's conjecture about what this is all about, but I think the text unpacks that even for us. But if you just take the verse out of context, it's hard to know what we're saying, so you've got to read on. So, uh, but they did something that was very wrong. And so it says in verse 2, So a fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. I mean, God judged them severely for this. And they died before the Lord. So Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke. And so he tells Aaron, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So the problem here certainly was this, that as they came before the Lord doing this, uh, who had just finished uh, this worship time before the altar, helping their father, but now they're doing their own thing. And uh, we see here that this was not from God. And whatever they did with this, they came with a wrong heart attitude before God, doing what they were not told to do, and God judged them for it. Let me read on just to help you understand. So in... in uh, in verse uh, uh, let me go down to uh, there's a response to that which is very emotional but I want to get down to verse 9 The Lord speaks to Aaron and says this, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Then uh, Then you may distinguish between what is holy and what is unholy, and between what is unclean and what is clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them. in the the hand of Moses. So these two young guys uh, perhaps came off of that time of worship in chapter 9, slugged down a few, felt pretty good, decided to do their own thing. They saw what God did. Maybe they thought this would be something that they could reproduce with God. Whatever they did, it was absolutely wrong with the wrong heart motive. Uh, It was a sin before God. It was a mockery of God's presence, and God judged them instantly. So when we read this text that Malachi is speaking about, he's talking about priests. And he's talking about people who come before God. And as they come before God, he says, Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution. Uh, And then he says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware. In other words, somebody who knows exactly what they're not supposed to do, and they do it anyway. I, uh, I can tell you that uh, in my lifetime growing up, I did a lot of things I was not supposed to do, and I did it anyway. And I'll bet some of you have done the same thing. You know, I, I can just tell you, I, I shouldn't tell you any stories, so I won't tell you a lot, but I can tell you that when I was a little kid, first of all, our garage was an old garage. It was a single car old garage attached to our house, and it was always full of spider webs and stuff. It had a gravel floor, and, you know, we tried to keep it neat, but it was still, you, you know, you know how it is. And so as a little kid, I would go in the garage and find any inflammable thing I could find, any flammable thing. And I would try to burn the, the spider webs out of the windows. And I would make a blowtorch out of a, you know, a, a spray can. You know how you do that? You light a, you get a lighter and you, you know, and you turn this thing on and you make a blowtorch and I would be blowtorching the spiders, you know, in the windows. It's a miracle I didn't burn the place down. Uh, that was fun. Now, boys do that, you know, they, you know, like to do that kind of stuff. Uh, I would not recommend you doing that, but uh, your parents might get mad, but that's, it is fun. Uh, but uh, other things that I did, which was much more troublemaking than that, and so I can just tell you that we all understand what it's like when we say we know what we should do, and then we don't do it, and we know what we should never do, and we still do it. And what is critical, I want to come back to this, what is critical at the end of verse 12 is the last phrase of verse 12. We've been saying this over and over, 21 times this is said to them. Yet, yet who brings an offering to who? The Lord of hosts. I want to keep saying that. The Lord of hosts. The Lord God Almighty. Uh, His presence. Doing this in His presence. This keeps being reinforced because they keep losing sight of that. They're they're not respecting that and losing sight of that. God's concerned about who He is in our our presence, in our uh, esteem of who He is. And He is the God and the Lord of hosts even for us today. The second thing then, verse 13, the second treacherous thing that Judah has done is given for us in verse 13. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears. Uh, It's it's one of those things. You cover the the altar with tears, but he goes on, uh, with weeping and crying So he does not regard the offering anymore. Just saying this, God is not respecting you. He's not regarding the offering anymore because of how you're approaching him. uh, Nor is he going to receive it with goodwill from your hands. Verse 14, yet, yet you say. And so there's this response, you know, in what way or "For for what reason? Well, why is God having that attitude that he's not receiving our uh, are, are not responding in a right way to us. And then he is told, they're told why. Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. So this is the second way that Judah has been treacherous. That word treacherous, by the way, it can mean, you know, uh, it, it, it can mean uh, ruthless betrayal, abandonment. Uh, These are the kind of things that maybe God has in mind here as he speaks through Malachi. But uh, even in verse 14, uh, we see this idea here that uh, between you and the wife of your youth, uh, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. There's this sort of description of the wife that you are with. So you're coming with tears in your eyes to the throne. And while you're doing that, this person who's coming with tears, who's not respecting their wife, who's dealt treacherously with their wife, is what he's saying. And yet you're coming to God with tears, expecting God to bless you, expecting God to be compassionate toward you while you're abandoning your wife at the same time. That's what he's saying. This uh, brings us to a section that we want to think about just for a moment. I'm just going to step out of this for a second and talk about uh, key passages in the Old Testament that have to do with divorce. There's only three, really. Uh, The first key passage is Genesis 2.24, which we all know. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's said at most weddings and so on. And this is talking, this is not talking about divorce per se, but uh, the inference is there. Uh, you're coming to be joined together. That word means to be united. Uh, you're coming to, uh, uh, to be one flesh together. That has to do with permanence. And so we make that statement based on that truth from Genesis. Uh, in Deuteronomy, the second one is in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. I'm only going to focus on verse 1, which basically talks about if a man discovers some uncleanness in his wife, that word some uncleanness, it's about indecency, it's connected to the word unfaithfulness, but it's not infidelity itself. If a man came and found, or a woman came and found her husband or the wife being in an adulterous situation, they could be stoned, they would be stoned according to the law. That was a big deal to God. But here, the understanding is that this is uh, indecency or something related to unfaithfulness, not necessarily the adulterous act, but things that were obvious that were leading down that road, things that were being done that was, were very ungodly. Today in our New Testament, we talk about this and we put it into the perspective of the word pornei, that we talk about the fact that uh, under that umbrella, there's this umbrella of adultery, fornication, and all kinds of variations of how those sins flesh themselves out in our modern-day culture. But certainly here, uh, it goes on to say that if a person finds some uncleanness, and if he writes her a certificate of divorce, it says in that text, uh, and just so you know, uh, as that's being unpacked, this is Moses who's basically telling them how this is to be unpacked and how this is to be processed. But the point is that this was not a permissive statement. This was not God speaking to Moses to say that it's okay to get a certificate of divorce. It was never the case. But the fact is that divorce had become very common in many situations. We're talking about that here in Malachi. That there was divorce going on. Moses wanted to make sure it had some regulation to it so he was making some comments about how this should be done if you're going to do this. But it's not this uh, free pass that marriage issue just uh, for whatever reason and that was what was happening in in uh, malachi's time uh, men were uh, leaving their wives from their youth and that's why he emphasizes here that that very thing that you've left the wife of your of your youth and they were connecting themselves with pagan wives who were younger and i suppose maybe more attractive i don't know i hope not uh, but they certainly were being stupid about this, and they were breaking off, casting away their their Hebrew wives, trading them off, basically. That's pretty serious. It's pretty ugly. And, and as we just sort of process this, it's interesting that... There's all kinds of reasons. But I want you to see that, uh, and as we know, uh, the Lord uses this phrase here, and uh, uh, Malachi quotes it in in verse 16. For the Lord God of Israel says, so he's quoting God, uh, that God hates divorce. And he uses this phrase, for it covers one's garment with violence. So this is the third uh, text, of course, in the Old Testament, and here's the statement that We can summarize here. God intended for it to be a unified relationship. Uh, Moses tried to structure it so it was done. If you're going to do this and mess up, at least do it in a proper way. Uh, In the third one here, we have God uh, being quoted as saying he hates divorce. And he tells us why. For it covers one's garment with violence. This separation of divorce, it's for all kinds of reasons, folks. And we can sit here and make a long list of reasons why people get divorced today, but neglect, you know, jealousy, anger, abuse, hatred, feelings of revenge. There's all kinds of emotions, but what's interesting is they're all emotions of violence. When you boil it down, uh, uh, oftentimes people act out these emotional things in their hearts. And the problem is, is that when we do this, when we have these things in our hearts and they're mulling in our minds and, and they're fracturing our lives with our, our spouses and usually in our homes and causing all kinds of trouble, these feelings jeopardize, first of all and foremost, one's walk with God. That's the first thing that happens. And there's no way you can love and worship and praise and, and please God when you have all these huge feelings that you're concentrating and dwelling on, that are welling up in your heart. They attack and destroy a person's faith, these things. Not to mention how they divide families and mess up kids' lives. And we all know this because divorce in the church has gone over 50% now. It used to be a one for one for a while. Now it's actually not even statistically, not even that. It's a mess. Actually, the statistics have changed a lot because a lot of folks just aren't getting married. And so it's, it's a mess. It was a mess then. It's a mess today. Divorce is just what it is. It's ugly and messy. But God calls it a garment covered with violence. I think the Lord hits it on the head. I think the Lord knows how to express what it really is. Some of you have been injured by divorce. Some of you are scarred by divorce. And I want you to know that uh, there's hope for you. And let me I'm not going to leave you hanging there. Because there's several important observations that we can pull from the text that we're in today. God hates divorce. He just told us that. But God does not hate divorced persons. I want you to hear that and let that soak in. Because divorce is no different than any other really sin that we commit to the lord it's it 's ugly it 's more sometimes more visible it's it 's damaging to so many people that 's why it's it 's a horrible thing to go through but God loves the divorced person in fact, God loves both parties he loves the one who 's perhaps more guilty if there is one that's more guilty he loves the innocent person if there is somebody who's innocent i don't know if there is but god certainly does but he longs to be a forgiver of sin that's what god has done for us it's the cross is all about that's why we say we believe in the grace that comes from the cross of christ if we believe that then we have to believe that god forgives What I want to stress, though, is that as as we understand this, that forgiveness itself requires repentance and obedience. So God just doesn't blanket forgive people for sin unless there's a sense of repentance, a broken, contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise, David said. What I find is often the problem is that a lot of folks who go through the hurt of this harbor the hurt. It goes deep in their conscience. And oftentimes it's easy for us to say it's the other person's fault that we came to this point. And maybe it is. But what happens is that we. We live there. We camp out there. We, we, we rehearse that. We restate that constantly. And while we're doing that, our own heart then is getting calloused to the voice of God that says that even if I've been hurt, my response to that is to draw near to the one who heals my hurt, who, uh, who gives peace in my weary soul, the one who loves me, embraces me, and says, I still love you, and I still love your mate, your spouse, who hurt you. And God wants to bring us to a point where we can someday say, oh, Lord, forgive me for the deep feelings I've been harboring against that person. Only God can do that. And God wants to do that. And God will do that. God hates divorce, not divorced persons. The second thing I want to say is this. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Vows are made with God as witness. And I know that so few today hold these vows very high. And by the way, this is why uh, here at Alpine, this is why when we meet with people who are going to be married, we try to walk them through and understand the seriousness, the gravity of stating vows before God. And it doesn't just have to be marriage. Anything you say that you declare that you're going to do uh, to seek God's blessing in your life, God holds you to that. Marriage is a covenant. James Montgomery Boyce makes this statement. He says this, quote, Instead of trying to find loopholes in God's commandment, or trying to convince ourselves that our spouse is not a Christian, or is at least not behaving as one, and therefore, in our minds, divorceable, we ought to be shouting, from the holiness of, uh, shouting of the holiness of marriage from the housetops. It is better to endure much personal unhappiness than to treat as expendable the solemn vows of the wedding service. Do we hear this? And here, I'll tell you where it's the toughest for us to hold a position or stand on a conviction. It's when our kids mess up with their mates. And if you're older, like me, your grandkids get pulled in. And our tendency is to want to sympathize with our child in that process and oftentimes we get pulled into taking sides, and oftentimes we weaken our stated stand on what we feel is right before God from His Word about the situation our kids are in. So I have a good marriage. I'm, uh, honey, where are you? I have a good marriage. I, she, she, oh, there she is. We have a good marriage, right? We're okay, right? Uh, so, yeah, but you know, so what happens is if our marriage is a is a good marriage. Uh, that's great for us. And we can make our stand on the conviction of the word of God. But as soon as that gets pressed by our own flesh, going through heartache and trouble, we get pulled into the vortex of our emotions. And we find ourselves struggling with that same conviction and standing. We want to weaken our position to sort of soften the, uh, the sense of, uh, of peace uh, and help our kids feel better about what they're going through and, Instead of sort of being a conviction point where we say, you know what, that's really not the right thing you should be doing. Because we're so fearful that they're going to turn on us. I just want to remind us as a church that we stand on God's word and we must stand. And it's tough sometimes to hold a position when there's so much emotion involved. That's why the Lord called it violence. So let me press on. The third uh, important observation is this. Mixed marriages are not God's will. Now, hold on. Let me help unpack so you'll understand where I'm going here. Mixed marriages are not God's will. God never promises that an unsaved spouse will be converted to Christ. He never promises that. But you and I know that God certainly accepts anyone who will genuinely repent and call on Him as Lord and Savior, right? Amen. And so many marriages who have found themselves in an unyoked, un. un-, yoked, un- uh, uncommon relationship with someone else because as a Christian with somebody who's not a Christian that's so difficult and some of you have found that God has blessed in your life that he has brought your spouse to Christ that is fantastic that is wonderful that's the grace of God in your life and we say hallelujah But let me just take two things. Let me draw your attention to this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me read four verses here, five verses to you from 1 Corinthians 7 as we think about this. And again, this is relating back to this text that Malachi has written about in chapter 7, starting, uh, if you would, with me at verse 12. Now, he's already talked about uh, being married or being single and so on. But he says here, uh, uh, he talks about if, the, if, the, if you're married to somebody who's not a believer and they leave you, they depart from you, that's verse 10 and 11, let them go, it's okay. Uh, uh, or if they want to live with you and you're, uh, they're not a believer and they want to live with you, you should let them live with you and so on. Don't divorce them because they're not, uh, not a Christian. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, verse 12, if any brother has a wife who does not believe... And she is willing to live with him. Let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. He's not meaning that they are saved. He's not meaning that they're not But he's saying that in that relationship, if you're willing to have this relationship and your husband or your spouse who's unsaved is willing to stay with you, God has all ability to work in your family, to protect and to lead them to the truth. But if the unbeliever departs, verse 15, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know? O wife, whether you will save your husband. How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So there is this sense that if at all possible, going back to what Paul says in Romans 12, if at all possible, try to, try to maintain this relationship in a way that brings peace into your home. If at all possible, you do that. But if one is not going to stay and they're not uh, converted to Christ, let them go. And so on. But if they will stay, that's a good thing. God will bless your marriage. It doesn't say that God will save them. It doesn't say that. But it says he will bless your marriage. And they'll be in a position or a situation where they can hear the truth, constantly see the truth. And, and hopefully that they'll be responsive to the spirit of God in that situation. And your kids. But it's not a God approved. This is not a God approved rationale for going into a relationship with someone who's not a believer. That's the difference. So God's not, you know, to the beginning saying, well, just go ahead and I'll try to fix it after you make a bad decision. But he does say his grace is available to repair if, if that works out, but it usually does not work out. This is really all of this that we're looking at in Malachi is... Primarily, an illustration that God is using. He's using marriage as an illustration to, to help us understand the relationship He wants to have with you and I. And He calls us into this covenant relationship together. And so as God does that, He's reminding us that if we then you know, build relationships around us in this covenant relationship who are not part of the covenant relationship with God then we are basically joining people together in a very unrelatable situation. I will read uh, this to you. If I already did, somebody wave at me. I can't remember. I don't think I did. I'll just read it. But it's in 2 Corinthians 6, a text we all know. But he says in verse 12, For you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same I speak as to children, you also... Be open. In other words, please be open. Don't be reactive. Just listen. And here's God saying in verse 14 through the Apostle Paul, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Like, don't be intimately connected, he's saying. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What, what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what harmony do you have with, with the devil, is what he's saying? Or, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God that you say you are with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. We might say, well, I don't know anybody who has idols that I know in my relationships. But I would come back and say, you have people who have different philosophies, different views on religion, different views on politics, different views on on relationships, different views on who Jesus Christ actually is and what He does, there, these, all of these things are divisive and separate us from having unity before Christ. Let me share this story with you. It's a true story. Olivia Langdon, who had been raised in a Christian home, she was a, a professing believer. Her parents were devout believers. But she chose to get married to the well-known American author, Mark Twain. Mark Twain, who was well-known for his open, critic uh, attitude about religion. And uh, historians write that uh, he was so enamored by her, she was a beautiful girl, he was enamored by her, that he actually allowed her to establish in their home family prayers. Uh, praying around the table, around meals, uh, having a reading, Bible reading in the morning before they leave the house uh, to go in their day. And that went on for some time, and finally he came to her one day and said, uh, I can't do this anymore. Uh, He's just expressed his distaste. He said, I have a distaste for all things Christian and the Bible. I I don't want to do this. I don't want you to go on thinking that I... Uh, I'm affirming this or that I'm a part of this and having you have a wrong understanding. I'm not interested in doing this. And as tragic as I'm sure that was for her to hear that, something worse took place for her. His unbelief and his strength and his personality and his talent and his, who he was had a disastrous influence on her. It caused her to gradually regress into doubt. She finally, later on, actually renounced her faith to her best friend. Something went wrong in their life, something serious. I don't know what it was, but as she was dealing with discouragement and so on, Twain said to her, he called her Livy, and he said, Livy, if it comforts you to lean on the Christian faith, do so. To which she replied, I can't. I haven't any. I I heard that story, and I'm I'm asking myself this question, and really it's kind of what is happening here in Malachi. When people are following priests who are supposed to be the righteous standard, the the ones who have all, all the biblical Old Testament Uh, knowledge and so on and lead people and especially leading people into worship as they receive their offerings and sacrifices and take them before God and the mockery of not believing themselves in what they were doing and so on some level I'm thinking how does this take place that a professing believer would really just say I don't believe in God anymore but I think it's a reflection of a dangerous condition, first of all, two ways. One is a false assumption of being saved. I just want to warn this body of Christ again, that there are many who may have made a profession of faith, but uh, today maybe you're questioning that in your own heart. Maybe if you were facing death right now, you'd be wondering if you are really, truly one of Christ's children or not. This false assumption, assumption of being saved. Jesus warned the Ephesian church, as you know, about having lost their first love. We know about that in Revelation chapter 2. But what is perhaps even more interesting, I think, is what it says in 2 Peter. I'm going to read it to you. It's so worth reading and worth marking in your Bibles. Because Peter addresses this in a very serious way in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. It's something that just sort of flies by us sometimes as we're reading the scriptures and we can lose sight of what Peter is saying here. He's talking about all that we have in Christ, all the blessings that we have. And so verse 5 and 6 talk about all of that uh, and how we should live a a discipled life. And uh, we should add all of these qualities to our life. Uh, That's something we should be in process of doing. Uh, Verse 7, to your godliness add brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness add love. And verse 8, it says, for if these things are yours... And abound. If you're a disciple of Christ and you're growing in your faith and these things are manifesting themselves, he's saying you will be neither barren nor unfruitful if you're in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're if you're exercising, just trying to be a stronger disciple day by day uh, through your life, if you're in the word of God, you're you're uh, responding to God's. Uh, you know, uh, uh, dealing with your conscience and your, you want to be what Christ wants you to be and so on. That's fantastic. And he's just saying you won't be unfruitful in your life if that's the case. Verse 9 says, though, for he who lacks these things, first he says, is short-sighted. So first of all, if you're not seeing spiritual growth in your life, If you're not interested in staying in the word of God, if you're not allowing God's word to deal with you and you rightfully respond to his word. He's saying that if nothing else, you're short sighted. Then he says, even to blindness. And here it comes. Mark this down. And has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Now, when I read this and I've tried to track this for years that I don't interpret this wrongly. Can, can a person profess faith in Christ and have a marker? Maybe when I was uh, eight years old I, uh, in Sunday school or eight years old at church or eight years old in my home by my bed or you know whatever it was, and I gave my life to Jesus, I asked him to forgive me of my sins. So we might have a marker. Some of us have, uh, well, I think when I was five or when I was six I did this, and we're not really sure. But somehow, as we sort of go through our life, we have not done what Peter talks about here, adding these things into our life, growing as a Christian, uh, becoming more self-evident of things in my life that show that I'm a disciple tracking Jesus. So if these things are not there, I can actually come to a point in my life where I I don't even know if I'm saved. I, I don't even know if I ever really gave my life to him because that would be a convicting thing to think about. And what I want to say to those who might be thinking this way is that don't play this game with God. Don't live in the, well, I'm not really sure. Don't live in that camp. That's a dangerous place to be. You're either with Him or you're not. He's either your Lord and Savior and Master or He's not. And we get this wishy-washy kind of thing where we're not really sure where we are, what we believe. And I'm just telling you, listen to the words of Jesus, what he says about this. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he or she who does the will of my Father in heaven... Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? I mean, we, we preached your, in your name. We did these things in your name. We cast out demons in your name. This is Jesus talking. I'm just embellishing it. We've done many wonders in your name. This is Jesus saying, this is the crowd that stands before me calling this stuff out. And then he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. The, the, the nightmare of going through our lives. And so even as Malachi's dealing with this, he's saying these priests, first of all, they have denied, they're denying the faith. They're, they're, the, the offerings have become a mockery to them. They don't want to do this. They don't care about the sacrifices. They don't care about the souls of the very people that they're supposed to be serving. That's one thing. But then they have role modeled this to their kids. They have role modeled this to God's people so that they weren't, all of them were not bringing their best animals for sacrifice. They were bringing the worst that they had. Because that's how they felt that they were being responded to by the priests. I mean, the priest don't care. Why should we care? Let's bring the worst we have. Let's keep the best for us. God doesn't need that anyway. God doesn't eat meals. So we'll just bring him this stuff. And they have no respect for the Lord of hosts. So the 21 times God has to say, do you not know who I am? (laughs) Alpine Bible Church, do you not know who I am right now? I haven't changed. I'm still the Lord of hosts. And all of us have to respond to understand that, to believe and profess oneself to be a follower of Christ and then directly disobey and disbelieve his word is living in a very dangerous kind of life. People playing a game with God, really, and uh, coming to worship God on Sunday morning with a divided heart is just about the worst thing you can do with God. Just think about it. If God had two young men who knew better and came to him with bad attitudes, wrong attitudes, whatever was going on, and God said, not only do I disagree with what you're doing, not only do I not like what you're doing, I'm just going to kill you. And somehow we just let that go by. Like, God doesn't do that today. He wouldn't do that to us. He did that to two married people in the book of Acts, chapter 5, for just lying about him. Uh, I don't know what God does in our lives. I just know that some of us may not even realize that sometimes God has to do drastic things to get our attention. But here's here's the wonderful news today. Jesus Christ loves me so much. He has pursued me and he has pursued you. As much as I messed up in my life, he still pursued me because his grace doesn't give up on those who are going to eventually turn their lives around and call on him as Lord. And today I would plead with you that you would hear his voice and respond to him before it's too late and just pledge yourself to him again. Ask him to forgive you a sin. Ask him to look into your heart and see this stuff in your life. It's not what it should be. And you can do that. And I'll tell you what will keep you from doing that is just pride. Right. And if it's not pride, then it's an arrogance that says, I don't care about God. And that person will eventually stand before him and face him. Right. And then you will. Too late. It's a hard, these are hard messages today. But they're messages to help us recognize the seriousness of his presence. And the wondrous thing of his love and grace, that he loves us in spite of our goofiness and our failures. If you come from a home that's been messed up and broken, Jesus Christ loves you today, and he wants nothing more than to forgive you and bless you. That's what he wants. But don't hold him at arm's length and say, I don't need that or I don't want you. Because the Holy Spirit may not keep knocking. I said last week that this altar is open, and it is. We're not going to play beautiful music and try to woo you to the front, but if you need to come to the front and just kneel and say, Lord, i got some business to do with you today. I cannot get in that car and go home until I do. Maybe that's what you need to do. And I would bid you to do that and come to him. Let's stand together as we close our service. Would you join me? If you feel the need to slip out and come, you do that while I'm talking, while I'm praying, and that's great. Maybe you just need to settle something with the Lord. Maybe you've got some issue with somebody else here, and you're just not in harmony, and you need to be. And you know that that's a big issue. Maybe you just need to come and just ask God to just heal the wounds and give you a fresh sense of who he is. Sometimes doing that in front of people strengthens the resolve to do what he's asked you to do it's easy to get in the car and forget. Put days and weeks and months between what you should do when he calls you right now. Lord, as I close, I ask you to just give freedom to whoever needs to just respond to you today. You are a God who loves us. You're a jealous God. You love us and you want a relationship with us that is genuine and wholesome and real tangible, meaningful. And Lord, I ask through your power that you would work in the lives and hearts of people today who are, I don't know, fearful. Maybe they're a bit resistant, but they know they need help. Lord, there may be somebody we know that is in our own family that we are just asking you to do something. And maybe we've been sort of careless about that and we haven't spent time passionately calling on you for that. Lord, you call us to be honest and faithful and true because that's who you are. And I ask by your mercy today that you would do a work in the lives of our hearts that is unexplainable and absolutely powerful. And effect, change in us. Something that will just send us out different give us hope in our lives that it seems like there's just nothing Lord thank you for your presence and your power may you do a work in our midst that is unexplainable today we come before you and thank you and praise you and ask to do that work in our hearts today as we leave here may you be magnified glorified may we live out the very presence of Christ in our lives. We pray these things because of you and who you are today, trusting you with all that there is in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you so much. Have a great day. And uh, you can still come and pray if you need to. And uh, we'll see you Wednesday night. God bless you.